Bibles and turn to John chapter 20. We continue in this wonderful and glorious text. Our study through the Gospel of John has been a little bit like riding a roller coaster. We've been through the, the whips and sharp corners and whirls of loops and twists and turns. We've steadily climbed up one hill after another of drama. We've descended into the, the steep sting of rejection and opposition that our Lord faced. In chapter 19, we climbed the final hill, which led unswervingly to the, the final climax of the whole thing, of the gospel of John and of the life of Jesus. And that is obviously the cross of Christ. As we turn the page from chapter 19 into chapter 20, we find ourselves kind of being hurled down the backside of that, that final culminating ascent, that massively steep hill, that climactic event of the cross of Christ. And we're plunging, wondering, is there a bottom to the fall? Our Lord is dead. He's in the tomb. Is, is there any end to the grief and the misery? Is everlasting ruin the end of the story? And in that constant downward descent, we quickly are jerked back into an upward motion on this roller coaster ride to the highest of heights. As we are told in no uncertain terms, the tomb is empty. Jesus has risen from the dead. It's as if our roller coaster made an abrupt turn from that downward descent, and now we are riding in the highest of places. The gospel records move quickly from Friday to Sunday morning. Beloved, Jesus does not stay long in the grave, for it simply could not hold him. There is eternal comfort for your soul, which I will come back to near the end this morning. Death lays no claim on our Lord, but there is enough proof in the gospel record that indeed our Lord was dead. But death did not have the final say. Upon this climactic event, the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, our faith rises or falls. And specifically, I mean your faith rises or falls based upon if this is true or not. Now, I do not mean to say, do not mishear me, as some false teachers are saying today, that the resurrection is the only thing, that we don't need the Scriptures. We just need to, to hone in on the resurrection. We can unhitch from the Old Testament and just focus on preaching Jesus risen from the dead. Well, we know Jesus rose from the dead from the Scriptures. We absolutely need the Scriptures. Our faith is built upon the truth here presented. We don't need to needlessly and dangerously reduce the essence of our faith to one event. But I do mean to say that there is an issue here of, of first importance. What Jesus did and said and how he lived and how he died and how he rose again, all of it as a package, matters to us. But this issue of our resurrected Lord is a matter of first importance. And Paul says that, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. These are top-tier issues. These must be true, or we have no faith. And he goes on to say that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. You see, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus our Lord is a matter of first importance for our faith. As Paul will say later in 1 Corinthians 15, that same passage, that if Christ did not rise from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
for we are still in our sin. The proven historical fact of our Lord's life, death, burial, and resurrection from the grave is the cornerstone of our faith. Upon the truth of the resurrection, we know that the redemption price for our sins was paid in full. Based upon the resurrection, we know that our justification before God, that we're declared right with God by God Himself, that that is secure. Based upon the resurrection of Jesus, we know that we have the Holy Spirit living in us according to Romans 8. According to the resurrection, we know that we have the spiritual power to walk in new lives, not as slaves to sin anymore, but as slaves to righteousness and to the God who redeemed us. Based upon the resurrection, we know that our physical bodies, though they die, yet they shall live. Though they face the corruption of the grave, yet one day that corruptible will put on incorruptible. That which is mortal will be clothed with immortality. And all of that rests upon the true uh, fact and action of our Lord to rise from the dead. Based upon the resurrection, we know we can suffer well for our Lord. We can suffer as He did, knowing the power of His resurrection. Based upon the resurrection of our Lord, we know that our final enemy, that of death, has already been conquered. That we need not fear it, nor wonder if we will overcome it. Knowing that it is soon to be fully defeated and overthrown. Jesus is, in this text, clearly presented as the first fruits of that great victory. Based upon the resurrection of Jesus, we are to comfort and encourage one another in the grief of the death of loved ones, affirming to each other that they will not remain asleep, but rather they will have priority at the return of our Lord and they will ascend to meet the Lord in first class while we ride in coach. And this is based on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. He is no longer in the grave. And so this matter of the resurrection of Jesus is a matter of of first importance. Everything I just listed for you are core tenets of the faith. You lose those. You lose your faith. You might as well abandon it all. And all of them rest upon the reality of our resurrected Lord. John 20 verse 1 describes the resurrection of Jesus this way. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Did you catch the urgency of the text? I read it a little faster to help you catch the urgency of the text. Mary is urgent to get to the tomb. She's intent 
to be there early, leaving before the sun is fully up. Peter and John are in a great hurry to get to the tomb and to verify what they've been told by Mary. In verse 9, the text tells us that Jesus must rise from the dead. There's urgency. He cannot be kept by the tomb. There's a lot about this scene in John 20 that John doesn't tell us. We know from the other Gospels all kinds of other information, right? And I'm not to preach those other texts this morning. I'm going to stick to John 20, but just remember from those what's going on. You remember the earthquake and the angel descending and rolling away the stone and and sitting on the stone. Remember the, the angels being inside the tomb when the women then went in to see what was going on in this open tomb. Remember the women on the way to the tomb before they got there, they were wondering who's going to roll away the stone for us. Remember, it wasn't just Mary Magdalene who went. It was Mary with several other women, many of them who stood at his cross on Friday night, now gathering Sunday morning to anoint his body with further spices and scents. John doesn't tell us those things. He doesn't tell us about the the Roman guards playing dead when the angel appeared with great light and loud thunder. He didn't tell us in John's account of of the uh, empty tomb and, and the angel saying to the women, He is not here. He is risen. But John, as he tells us about it, focuses on the urgency of the matter. Mary must go. Peter and John must see, and Jesus must rise from the dead. Every one of those three points I just mentioned of urgency, they convince us and press upon our souls the truths about the resurrection. There's a compelling and urgent reality to the empty tomb that rests upon you this morning that you can't get out from under until you deal with it and then rejoice over it. First we see in verses 1 and 2 that Mary must go. She has to be there. She can't delay. You see that urgency in her steps, don't you, as John describes this in verse 1? That she, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, the idea here is at first opportunity. The first chance she had to get herself to the tomb of Jesus, she was going to be sure she was there. We're told by Matthew and Mark that there were several other women who went with Mary, but John focuses just on Mary Magdalene. Well, why does he do that? It's a a narrative technique. He's going to come back to her in verse 11. He's going to tell us more about her and her encounter with the resurrected Lord. In fact, we're going to find out from John that Mary Magdalene is the first one that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears to. And you see that carried over, by the way, in all the other Gospels when they list the women who went to the tomb, they list Mary Magdalene first. I think that's their way of honoring her in church history as the woman to whom Jesus made preeminence over to appear to her first, to let her know first that he was resurrected from the tomb. What John presses upon, however, is the urgency of her mission. Matthew 28.1 tells us that she went to the tomb after the Sabbath and at the beginning of dawn of the first day of the week. Mark 16.2 says it was uh, that the sun had risen. Luke 24 verse 1 says it was early dawn. John wants you to know, he kind of backs the train up a little bit further. He says, I want you to know it was still dark. Now all of those descriptions, they're not in conflict. There are different eyes looking at the same sunrise scene. It's different ways to describe the sun coming up over the horizon. 
John's point to you is, is at first light, while it was still dark, the, the first chance she had to get to the tomb on this new day, she was on her way. She was urgent to get to the tomb. By the way, just a, a note about the harmonizing of the, diff, the different gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As you put them together, it appears that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb with the other women. So they were all together going to the tomb. So really what we see in Mary, this urgency, we really see in all of them. They're all urgent and eager to be there. They came with these spices to anoint the body of Jesus, which, by the way, again shows you they presumed he was dead. They knew he was dead. They saw him get put in the grave. Further proof that it is historical fact, Jesus died and was buried. As they approached the tomb on that early, in that early morning scene, I think, as I understand the harmonization of these texts, they see from a distance the stone rolled away. And they were wondering, how's it going to be moved? We're not strong enough to do it. They approach, see it move. And as they approach, Mary is panicked with the disciples need to know. And so she, in my understanding, departs, runs back to get Peter and John, while the other ladies proceed to the tomb. They proceed to the tomb. They enter into the empty tomb. They see the angel sitting there who tell them he is not here he has risen, go and tell his disciples. Those ladies leave the empty tomb. They depart to go tell the other disciples. Mary Magdalene is getting Peter and John and telling them, come and see. They're rushing back to the empty tomb. The other ladies are leaving the empty tomb to go tell the other disciples. Peter and John beat Mary Magdalene back to the tomb. That's our account this morning. And then Mary Magdalene, probably out of breath, gets back to the scene of the empty tomb after Peter and John are on their way out. And she has this encounter we'll read about next week with the risen Jesus, thinking him to be the gardener. This is, in my understanding, how we bring all these things together. But you must know Mary was urgent to see her Lord, to care for his dead body. As John focuses upon Mary and her urgency, I ask you, what is it that's pushing her forward? If you wore her sandals, would you be there? Would you have gotten up before first light, collected your spice, peered out your window to see, can I go yet? Would you have talked with your friends, fellow disciples of Jesus the night before to say, hey, what's our plan? When are we leaving? Where are we meeting? How are we going to go together? Remember, this urgency for Mary is, is not unique for her. In fact, the Gospels tell us that she was one of the last ones at the scene of Calvary. She stayed longer with some other women, longer than anyone else. She saw Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus handle the body of Jesus and put it in this borrowed tomb. She's one of the last ones on scene on Friday, and she's here, one of the first ones on scene on Sunday. I ask you, what is driving her urgency? Why can she not be absent? Why must she be at the grave of our Savior? Isn't the answer to that question, maybe you've thought of several, but isn't the core answer to that question found in the account of Luke 7 where one of the Pharisees, you remember this story, invites Jesus in to have dinner with him? 
His name was Simon, and he wanted Jesus to come to a meal, and it was a lot of showmanship, apparently. And as they're eating, this woman of the city she's described as, one whom everyone knew to be a sinner. We have no idea what her sin was. Other than that, it was public. Everybody knew it. She came in and weeping, approached the feet of Jesus and wept over him in tears of of joy and sorrow and wiped his dirty feet with her hair, drying off her tears and then anointed his feet with ointment that she brought. And you remember remember what Simon's reaction to that scene was? In his house of all places, this highfalutin, high-religious, proud Pharisee, how dare you let that woman do that to you in my house? Of course, he didn't say it that way. He said, how could you? Don't you know who this is? How could you let her touch you in that way? How could you let her do this to you in that way? You remember Jesus' response in that scene in Luke 7? What did he say? He answered him with a parable, with a story. And Simon, I have something to tell you. There were two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and one who owed 50. The lender decided to just wipe the slate clean for both of them. Which one of those will love that lender more? The obvious answer, the one who owed more. The one who owed 500 denarii. Jesus goes on to turn that to the situation between Simon and this woman who wept at the feet of Jesus and says, Simon, when I came, you didn't even greet me. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't anoint my head. You did nothing for me. But this woman, who has been forgiven much, has loved much. Don't you think that's the urgency of Mary Magdalene on Friday night and on Sunday morning? In fact, Luke 8, right after that account in Luke's gospel, Luke 8 tells us that there were many women who followed and supported the ministry of Jesus. And one of the few he lists by name is Mary Magdalene. You know what he says about her? Out of which were cast seven demons. She knew the depths of her sinfulness. She knew the desperation and the need of her own soul for forgiveness. She knew she had no hope that she couldn't solve her sin problem or her demon problem. She needed a Savior outside of her, and she found the only Savior in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And He cleansed her. He purified her. He forgave her. He justified her. And now she loves Him. And she's urgent in her love for Him not able to help herself, but longing to be at his tomb. I wonder if you understand the connection between your devotion to the Lord, your sacrificial service to the Lord, and your comprehension of your sinfulness and his forgiveness, of his love to when you were a sinner, Give himself for you that you could be rescued from his wrath. You see, that thought, that reality, rightly dwelt upon, received by faith and rejoiced over, will compel you to spend and be spent for your Savior. That will be one of the most convicting, compelling, and joy-giving thoughts of your soul. 
that I am forgiven by Jesus, my Lord. J.C. Ryle, in a way only J.C. Ryle can, says it this way, how is it that many who profess and call themselves Christians do so little for the Savior whose name they bear? How is it that many whose faith and grace it would be uncharitable to deny work so little, give so little, say so little, take so little pains to promote Christ's cause and bring glory to Christ in the world? Those questions admit of only one answer. It is a low sense of debt and obligation to Christ, which is the account of the whole matter. Where sin is not felt at all, nothing is done. And where sin is felt little, little is done. The man who is deeply conscious of his own guilt and corruption and deeply convinced that without the blood and intercession of Christ, he would sink deservedly into the lowest hell. This is the man who will spend and be spent for Jesus and think that he can never do enough to show forth his praise. Let us daily pray, he says, that we may see the sinfulness of sin and the amazing grace of Christ more clearly and distinctly. Then and then only shall we cease to be cool and lukewarm and slovenly in our work for Jesus. Beloved, as you see Mary's commitment and devotion to our Lord, learn from her pattern. She knew her sinfulness and she knew her Savior and she couldn't help but be urgent in her service. Not only must Mary go, but Peter and John must see. Peter and John must see. So she rushed to Peter and John, told them about the empty tomb. They leave everything immediately and have to see it for them themselves. As they race to the scene, John tells us things that only a participant could tell us. That he and Peter went. That he outran Peter but yet he didn't enter into the tomb. But as soon as Peter arrived, he bull rushed in to see what was going on. And then John went in after him. Those are things that only someone who is on scene and part of it would know to tell you. And as de facto leaders of the apostles of our Lord, they have to go see what has happened. What is the story with this empty tomb? Why is Jesus' body not there? And you must wonder what it is they were thinking as they rushed from their house in Jerusalem to the hillside just outside the city. Whether that took them five minutes or 15, I don't know. But as they're running there, can you imagine what they're wondering? Can you imagine the scenarios that are going through their mind about why the tomb is empty? What might be some you could think of that they might think? Well, they might wonder, I wonder if the Jews did this, the Sanhedrin did this that they could say, we stole the body so they could try us and execute us like they did Jesus. Or I wonder if it's the Romans who are, are trying to pit us against the Jews and create a conflict that then Pilate can come in with his power and be more authoritarian and have more control to squelch all that's going on. Or maybe grave robbers have come and, and come into the tomb and steal stolen the body of Jesus. All these scenarios run through their mind, and through their head as they go. John tells us that he outran Peter. That in church history has stood as the proof that John was younger than Peter, along with the fact that John outlived Peter by 30 years. We don't know for sure. It's, it seems to fit, but we don't know. We'll find out in heaven. But we do know that there is a difference of, of personality, or maybe better, there's a difference of temperament between Peter and John. 
And notice it's just a, a statement of fact. It's just a reality in the scene. John arrives on scene. We don't know why, but for whatever reason, he stops short of entering the tomb. He stands outside. He looks in. He's taking it all in, probably trying to figure out what's the right and honorable thing to do here. Peter arrives on scene and bull rushes right through any prohibition or inhibition in his heart and goes in. He's got to see it. What is going on in there? And rushes right in the tomb. And this is helpful for us. It's a minor point in the text, but one I think that's worthwhile. It's helpful for us in the body of Christ to realize that not everyone's like me. Not everyone's going to handle the same situation the same way that I'm going to handle it. And frankly, that's going to annoy me sometimes, right? John probably saw Peter rush past and went, what are you doing? Are you kidding me? Have some respect. But indeed, the text does not condemn Peter for what he did. And indeed, in our situation, in our handling of situations as a body of Christ, we will have things that others handle differently than us. And God will use that in the body to strengthen us and to encourage us. Let's, in this text as we see it, let's show grace to one another and let God use one another in those situations. What is true, however, about both men is that they both had to see it. They both had to know what happened as they approached this empty tomb. And what did they see when they got there? What struck them? What scene was there? The stone was rolled away. The tomb was open. The linen cloths were lying there. The face cloth was separated from the linen cloth and wrapped up lying by itself, presumably in some kind of order. Why does John tell us this? Why does he tell you the linen cloths are there and the face cloth is wrapped up by itself by sitting in an orderly fashion? We want you to know, first of all, he saw it himself. It's true. Jesus isn't there. The body was gone. It was just the linen cloths and the, the napkin around the face of Jesus that stayed there. He also wants you to know how highly unusual this is. This mixture of myrrh and aloe that they used to attach these claws to a dead body were like a, a bonding agent to the skin. And it would, it would take those linen cloths and attach them to the skin of, of this decaying body and, and in some way stop the, the stench, at least, of, of that process. And so like this paste bonding these linen strips to the body, it would be tightly wound. And so it's highly unusual to not have the body but have the linen cloths. Now you remember this from John 11, don't you? When Jesus appears or approaches the, the tomb of Lazarus, he's been dead for four days and he knows what he's about to do. He says to them, roll away the stone. Martha objects, Lord, he stinks. It's been four days. You don't want to smell that. They roll away the stone. He says, Lazarus, come forth. You remember how he came out? Completely empty of all the linen cloths and the handkerchief wrapped up in a place. By no, he had it all on still, right? And Jesus says, unbind the man. Let him go. Take off the linen cloths. Take the handkerchief off of his face. Let him see and breathe again because he is indeed alive again. See, the resurrection of Jesus is, is in complete contrast to that. He didn't come out of the tomb and have to have someone there unwrapping him. He left all the corruption and everything associated with death in the tomb. What John saw was the linen cloths laying in one place by themselves, the face cloth wrapped up neatly, 
by itself. Why does he tell us that? What's the distinction made there? I think it's this fact that convinced John that nobody stole the body of Jesus. You're going to come in the middle of the night and you're trying to stir up trouble and take away the body of this master teacher that others are following. Or if you're coming to to steal a body in the middle of the night, you're not going to take time to unwrap the body meticulously, taking off one cloth at a time and leaving it in a pile. And if you did that, if by chance, for some weird reason, you did that to add to the scenario or something, you certainly wouldn't take the face cloth off and wrap it neatly, putting it in another place. If anything, you'd take it off and throw it on the pile with all the other cloths. I think this is our Lord's signature upon this scene. This is like his handwriting on the evidence to say, I'm not here anymore. I am alive. He's making known that something highly unusual, something gloriously miraculous happened in this tomb. And this effect upon our our friend John is to cause him to believe. He saw and he believed, he says. Up to that point, he simply couldn't understand how all the scriptures that had been drilled into him from boyhood, now would be fulfilled in this moment. But when he saw the empty tomb, he believed. We don't know about Peter. John only tells us about himself. Luke 24 says Peter walked away amazed, wondering to himself, conflicted with the reality of what had happened, unsure, I think, of really what to think of it all. These men are obviously on a journey of faith. They don't know everything. They can't comprehend all the facts. They don't know how all the facts they're seeing are fitting with the truths of Scripture pertaining to Christ and His resurrecting work. But not knowing all the facts doesn't prevent their believing. John, seeing the empty tomb, sees the evidence and believes in Jesus. In fact, this chapter in John 20 is all about belief. We start in this first section with the belief of John. The next section, we'll see the belief of Mary Magdalene. The section after that, we'll see the belief of the disciples when Jesus appears to them in the upper room. The section after that, we'll see the belief of of Thomas, who refused to believe until he could put his hands in the healed wounds of Jesus. Then he believed. And then the chapter will end and say, I have written these things to you so you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, you may have life. In his name. The whole chapter is about us being brought to belief with the fact of the resurrected Jesus. And so I ask you, as the urgency of this scene rests upon your soul this morning, do you believe? Seeing the empty tomb, does it convince you that Jesus rose from the dead? For if you do believe he rose from the dead, the only explanation is that he is everything he said he would be. He is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy about a coming promised one. He is our perfect sinless Savior. He is the only hope of your redemption. He is indeed Jesus our Messiah. So do you believe this? Have you let go of any and all hope to save yourself? Have you, like Mary Magdalene, seen that Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and now risen, 
is the only hope to rescue you from your sin? Have you, as it were, entered the empty tomb, seen and believed? And then notice lastly the urgency of Jesus rising from the tomb. This is what Jesus, John and Peter didn't quite fully understand when they saw the empty tomb. They didn't grasp the urgency of the matter for our Messiah. They didn't understand, John says, the scripture that clearly spoke of the necessity of our Messiah's rising from the dead. Notice how their lack of faith, however, does not dictate what our Messiah does or does not do. Praise be to God for that. His plan is not dependent upon his disciples having the right kind or the right amount of faith or belief in him being able to do it. He was determined from before the foundation of the world to give his life as a ransom for many, including rising from the dead in complete and total victory. And though they didn't yet fully get it, though they were still infantile in their faith, he still did it. This word for must in verse 9, as we've talked about this word before, it's a Greek preposition that is a divine necessity. When the text uses this word, it, it simply cannot not happen. It has to happen. It must happen. It's the word used in John 3 and verse 14 where Jesus said, like the serpent in the wilderness was raised up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Must, same word. Divine necessity. There's no way around it. The same word used in John 4 and verse 4 when John tells us that Jesus must go through Samaria. He must needs go through Samaria, as the King James says. It was a compulsion upon his soul. He had a divine appointment with a woman at a well, and he couldn't avoid it. He had to go. The same word used in John 10 when Jesus says, I have sheep who are not of this fold, and I must bring them in. It's divinely necessary. Appointed by God. So too, Jesus must rise from the dead. Now we know this divine necessity from the Old Testament Scripture, don't we? You know the Old Testament well enough. I trust to, to bring some of these things to mind. We'll just think for a minute about Abraham offering Isaac and receiving him back from the grave. Hebrews 11 interprets that for us and lets us know that Abraham was believing his God to be a God of resurrection. That even if he went through in obedience and and killed his son like what he was told by God to do, that God would raise him from the dead. He was the son of promise. But God spared him from death as a foreshadowing of the one who would conquer death. We see this hint of resurrection, don't we, in the story of Jonah, the rebellious prophet who was told of the Lord, go to your worst enemy and preach the gospel. And He said, uh, thanks, but no thanks, and went the other way. Got on a ship heading the other direction. The storm caused him to be thrown from the ship by the sailors who reluctantly said, you're the problem, get off. Thrown to a presumably watery grave, right? No way you're surviving in a storm like that, way offshore like he was. There's no way out of that. You will die in that watery tomb. And yet, three days later, he was, if you will, resurrected spit out of the watery tomb by a big fish. The resurrection of Jesus is prefigured in Enoch and Elijah, who are the only ones to escape death through God's miraculous translation of them into heaven. Speaking of Enoch, it says God took him. Took him. Just let him cheat death. 
as a foreshadowing that the death does not have the last say for Enoch, for Elijah, or for any who are in Christ. Pointing ahead to one who would secure that victory. Then there are the specific prophecies pointing to this resurrection. Words like Job 19 verse 25 where he says more than he knows for sure. He says, my Redeemer lives and at last he will stand upon the earth and I will see him with my eyes. That's, that's a clear prophecy of a coming Messiah who forever lives. Psalm 16 verse 10, which Nick read earlier, declares that Messiah will not see corruption, will not be turned over to the decay of death. Ezekiel 37 in the glorious text of being given a new heart says, I will open the grave for you. In other words, I will bring you back to life. Obviously spiritual, but more than spiritual, right? Obviously more than just soul resurrecting. There's bodily, glorious, eternal life offered there. All of those and many more point ahead to the resurrection of Jesus that it must happen. Not only must it happen because the Old Testament said so, it also must happen because Jesus said so. In his very words to the apostles again and again, he said, listen, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and the leaders in Jerusalem are going to put me to death, but you must know I am going to rise on the third day. In fact, he was so clear about that that the Sanhedrin remembered that he said that. His own disciples on Sunday morning apparently had forgotten or were unsure if it was true. The Sanhedrin remembered it. You remember on Saturday, they went to Pilate and they said, listen, he said on the third day, he's going to rise from the dead. So to guarantee that his disciples can't pull one over on us, put a guard at the tomb so that he cannot trick us. They cannot trick us. They remembered. The disciples forgot. Jesus was clear. On the third day, I will rise. Why must he rise from the dead? Because he said he was going to rise from the dead. And if he doesn't do what he said he's going to do, he's not who he said he was. Not only must he rise from the dead because of what he said, because of what the Old Testament said, but also because his own incarnation demanded his resurrection. The fact that he, as divine God, humbled himself and took on flesh, demoted himself to the deepest level of humanity, coming as slave to all, Philippians 2 says. Taking upon himself another nature, a human nature. Coming as the Word of God, the eternal Word of God, to make God known, to reveal Him to us, and to redeem us to God. John 1, that's clear in John 1.18. If that's what Jesus is, if that's who He came to be, then He cannot stay in the tomb. If He is God in human flesh, He cannot die. For if He can die in this condition, then indeed God is dead. But He cannot die. The grave cannot hold Him. And his flesh was not like a human bathrobe of flesh that he could just take off and leave behind because it was used to accomplish his purpose. And now he can go forward as though he were never man. Now, because of his incarnation, he is forever both human and divine. 
Therefore, his physical body is forever joined to his divine nature. Therefore, when his physical body dies, it cannot stay dead, or else it would say something about his divine nature and something you don't want it to say about his divine nature, that he isn't actually divine. But indeed, he was, is, and forever will be. Therefore, his physical body matters. His flesh in the tomb mattered. It had to be rescued from the decay of death. It had to be resurrected. It had to be remade. That which was mortal had to be remade into immortality. That which was corruptible by the punishment of our sins upon him on the tree needed to be made into incorruptible. And in this way, as Paul so gloriously says in 1 Corinthians 15, you also know this is coming for you. He is the first fruits of that same thing for us. This resurrection is demanded by his incarnation. It's also demanded by the very fact that Jesus truly and actually died. His body entered that tomb having paid the full price for our sins, meaning the work was complete and the fullness of redemption was accomplished. So why stay there? If what he said on the cross was true, it is finished, paid in full, completed in totality. If that was true, why stay in the grave? And he had to go in the grave to prove he was dead. And indeed he was. But to stay in the grave would make no sense if indeed the redemption work was done. You see, the grave had no hold on him. It had no word over him. It had no authority to say, you're mine. He now, by his redemptive work, could say, no, I'm your master. I'm your conqueror. All this happens as the tomb is opened and our glorious Lord exits and the grave clothes are left behind. It happens in short order to prove the grave had no hold on Jesus. Beloved, see here the hope for your own future and that of your own loved ones who've passed before us. Jesus must rise from the dead. The stone must be rolled away. It simply could not be any other way. And if you are in Christ, when you die, the grave has no eternal hold on you. The tomb must be opened again. Just like it was for Jesus, so too will it be for you. And you will rise with Him for all of eternity. And by the way, just as Jesus left that tomb and left behind His grave clothes, the only thing that connects Him to death the display of the corruption and the horror and the awful reality of death. He left it there. He took nothing of death with it. He overcame it entirely and completely. No corruption leaves the tomb. So too in Christ, you must know no corruption will stick with you after the resurrection. You will be raised incorruptible. But see also that our Lord was not long in the tomb. The gospel writers move quickly from Friday to Sunday on purpose. They mean to paint for you here the glorious hope of your own resurrection. 
that though you may lie in the grave for three days or three years or 300 years or 3,000 years or 30,000 years, it will end. And in eternity, it will be as though it were only three days. He was not long in the tomb, and neither will those who are in Christ be long in the tomb. Jesus is soon returning, soon resurrecting, and soon His people are rising to live forever with Him. Do you believe this? If you do, beloved, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you deserve all of our praise, filling us with such joy in the glorious hope of the resurrection of Jesus. We ask for any unbelievers among us today who have heard of this Jesus but don't know him in personal faith. Father, we ask that today would be the day of you bringing them to the new birth and new life in Jesus our Lord. Father, would you show them that Christ is their only hope? Would you rescue their souls from death? Would you give them eternal life? Father, we pray for those among us who are hurting the most in grief and in loss. Would you, with the resurrection of Jesus, comfort their souls, carry them along with this wind of faith under their wings, and help them to know that we will not long be in the tomb, but will soon rise with our Lord. Father, would you then stir in us devotion like that of Mary Magdalene. Remind us of our sinfulness and of your salvation and compel us by your grace to serve you wholeheartedly and sacrificially. May it all be to the praise of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.